That's the sound of women singing in Transkei, South Africa, in 1957. One of the thousands of remarkable African field recordings made by Hugh Tracy. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Hugh Tracy is a legend of African music history because he recorded and produced over 200 albums of traditional African music. Starting in the late 1920s, this song chaser traveled to the far reaches of southern, central and eastern Africa, where he documented the music, dance and customs of people on the verge of radical change in the colonial era. His recordings make up the largest single body of African traditional music in the world. He was a great field recordist and really did it the hard way at a time when, you know, it was extremely difficult to make these recordings. So very much a pioneer in that pioneering generation. Well, Hugh Tracy's archive constitutes the musical memory of half a continent. And that's quite something. And no one can take that away from him. Those are two of our music guides, Professor David Copeland, author of In Township Tonight, South Africa's Black City Music and Theatre, and musician and producer Michael Baird. They join other Hugh Tracy specialists, his son Andrew Tracy, and ethnomusicologist Diane Flam, to tell the story of a legend on this special hip-deep edition. Discover and record the field recordings of Hugh Tracy. Now I know what you're thinking. How can you discover music that local people have been playing for centuries? The word is just loaded with colonial baggage, and that's the point. Hugh Tracy made a spectacular contribution to the study of African music, but he was absolutely a product of his time. Tracy was one of those young British men who needed to break out of the mold. And in the heyday of colonialism, Africa was an alluring option. And I think when he encountered the African thing, uh, he was bitten. He just got cultural malaria. I mean, it just got into his blood, as in the same case with Andrew. And a good thing it did, because the results were priceless recordings, like this Cosa dance tune banned by missionaries. recorded in Transkei, South Africa in 1957. Georges Collinet with you on our hip-deep tour of the life and work of field recordist Hugh Tracy. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. Starting in 1929 and right up to his last recording expedition in 1973, Hugh Tracy recorded just about everything. Love songs, 
humorous songs, dance songs, calls to prayer, regimental songs, party songs, grinding songs, flute tunes, riddles. That's Diane Fran, director of the International Library of African Music, back at Rhodes University in Grahamstown. Smoking songs, yeah, smoking songs, I think. Did you see that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, marriage songs, circumcision songs, funeral songs, healing songs, curses, child songs, lullabies, group fighting songs. It's song important to understand that nobody else was recording this music when Hugh Tracy got started. Tracy's work offered the world its first glimpse into the genius of African music. He not only held the microphone, he was an ambassador, an explorer, a writer, a technician, a musicologist, and a humanist at a harsh time in African political history. So, who was he? What made Tracy tick? Well, Hugh Tracy was the son of an English country doctor, and um, as a young man, you know, a, a late teenager, he couldn't really find a goal in life. Um, so, his mother sent him out to southern Africa, where his elder brother had a tobacco farm in southern Rhodesia, which is Zimbabwe. Dad was, as it were, dumped on a farm in the early 20s, found himself among a culture that was fascinating. That's Hugh's son, Andrew Tracy. We met him at Rhodes University in South Africa, where he's now retired. Andrew shares his dad's love of music and even looks a bit like Hugh, minus the safari gear and hat, of course. Andrew enjoys talking about his late father. So I think it was quite natural that brought to Africa when he was in his early 20s that he picked up the music. And then it was when he realized how important the music was in African life and culture and how much it was being abandoned by Africans themselves and being discouraged by missionaries especially. When he saw that, he realized that someone should do something about it, and he was the one to do it. What you're hearing now may never have been played on the radio. These are U Tracy's first recordings of African music. Michael Baird tells the story of that session in 1929. Where he drove the truck with a, a truckload of Shona Karanga singers down, whatever, the 600 Ks down to Johannesburg. It was in Johannesburg that he met up with a team of recordists from EMI. They were still using wind-up power at the time, and together they made one of the first ever recordings of traditional African music. Here's a much more recent recording made in South Africa. This is Hugh Tracy's son, Andrew, singing in Shona and playing the Shona Mbira at the Hugh Tracy Archive in Grahamstown in 2009. <laughs> The Mbira was Hugh Tracy's first love and in some ways his greatest project. In the late 50s, he would build a business to manufacture his own version of it, called the Kalimba. And today, used Kalimbas are sold in music stores all over the world. 
The mbira is part of an ancient family of African instruments, what musicologists call lamellophones. These instruments were used by the Shona people to honor and summon ancestral spirits. And um, a sort of a mythical thing happened. Uh, young Hugh was out in the tobacco fields and heard the Shona work songs and fell in love with the music. Then he discovered the mbira, he learned the language. Then he discovered that the missionaries had forbidden playing the mbira because it was all about ancestor worship and not at all Christian-like, very pagan. Andrew Tracy. And he spoke harshly against the missionary destruction of African culture. Because he thought it was great music and they had no business whatsoever forbidding a, a traditionalist expression. In the 1920s, the early days of Rhodesian rule in Shona lands, Tracy's liberal views were up against heavy odds. Spirit possession was seen as demonic by Christian missionaries. And what's more, spirits were known to inspire insurrections. Tracy wasn't worried about any of that. The guy with his English ears just fell in love with African music. That in itself is not so mysterious because it's great music. But he was the first one and that makes him absolutely exceptional. Soon Tracy brought copies of his recordings home to England and even broadcasted them on the BBC. I mean, 1932, he was back in London at the Royal College of Music, undoubtedly playing his recordings, explaining the meaning of the songs because he spoke the language. And you had Gustav Holt and Vaughan Williams, famous composers. They, they were completely turned on by this music. Of course, they never heard anything like it. And they enthusiastically told Hugh Tracy, look, you must go back to Africa and discover and record, discover and record. Tracy went on to produce 210 LPs in what he called the Sound of Africa series. In a way, when you think about it, 1932, London, Royal Academy of Music, maybe we could call that, uh, you know, one of the founding moments of world music. They were classical composers and, and they were turned on by the structure and the musicality and the depth of the music coming from Zimbabwe that Hugh Tracy played them. Tracy soon moved from Rhodesia to South Africa, where we began a long-life quest to fund the recording of traditional African music. One of his funders was Eric Gallo, who founded Gallo Tone Records in South Africa. And they shared a love of music, and for some of his uh, field trips, Eric Gallo gave Hugh Tracy some money. And they had a gentleman's agreement that should Hugh Tracy chance upon a musician who had obvious commercial potential, he would pass that on immediately to Gallo Records in South Africa. Tracy discovered many of Africa's first pop stars, like this Congolese guitar giant, Jean Bosco Mwenda.
Wende umambie mtoto yule ya bayeke Wende umambie mwenye singo ya upanga Wende umambie baba bosko wa bayeke Sipona bwana tumba ni kama kinga ya sipona la pio Nani mvala mabaya Nani mvala shebula Nani mvala mabaya Guitarist Jean Bosco Mwenda. This song, Masanga, recorded by Tracy, was one of the first truly popular song recordings in Africa. More often than not, however, Tracy's taste veered away from pop and towards the more traditional and non-commercial, like this ritual society song in Malawi. It's played on the one-string lute for masked ceremonies. <laughs> There were many times in between fundings when money was extremely short and this is one of the reasons why he started the firm African Musical Instruments with the instrument Kalimba, which Dad developed. Tracy eventually sought institutional backing. That's when he founded ILAM, 1954. That's the International Library of African Music, now located in Grahamstown, South Africa. And ILAM was founded with the help of the Nuffield Foundation in England. ILAM is still home to the Tracy Collection in its entirety, over 20,000 recordings and 350 indigenous instruments from throughout Africa. The sheer mass of Tracy's work is overwhelming, but it helps to focus in on a few gems, like this ocarina tune played by three young Mozambican girls in 1955. Thank <laughs> you. 
The ocarina, or gourd flute, is made from the spherical fruit of the mutamba orange tree in Mozambique. Tracy was the first to record it, and the same is true for many other indigenous African instruments. He was happier discovering, I think, actually, than collecting, because if he recorded a music that no one had ever talked about before, he obviously felt that uh, he was the first person outside of that tribe or that people to have heard the music. As a pioneer field recordist, Tracy also developed his own recording techniques. He had his microphone on a boom and he held the boom in his hand, and it was just a short boom. So he was able to move around at close quarters recording the musicians. That's Michael Baird. Now Hugh Tracy also was into, let's just call it uh, micro-acoustics. You know, it can make a hell of a difference if you're 10 centimeters one side or 10 centimeters back or forward, you know. And when you're holding a microphone in your hand and moving around, your technology are your ears. He never recorded with headphones on. All of Tracy's recordings were done in mono. He had to be right there, in the moment, with the music, following each musical shift and trying to intuit what would happen next with a microphone like stuck in front of them, you know? And that's the same type of thing that Miles Davis did. You know, he'd wander around the stage, certainly at the beginning of a concert, you know, going toot toot on his trumpet, finding the best place where his instrument sounded the best. And when he found a good place where he got some kind of resonance or whatever, or the acoustics were just good there rather than a yard back, that's where he stopped and, and played a solo. played today in Southern Africa. Tracy captured the sound of various bow instruments in many of his recordings. The sound is intimate, as if he were alone with his subjects. Michael Baird says that's exactly what Tracy intended. He had a um, truck uh, specifically uh, rebuilt with a, a raised roof so that his sound engineer could stand in it. And he had a hundred yards uh, extra cable going from the generator, the diesel generator that gave him the electricity to record. But he could park it uh, out of earshot, like uh, behind a hut or an anthill. And in that way, um, he was very self-sufficient.
is a rare drumming recording released on the Sharpwood City on the edge of the Ituri Forest, part of a larger Hugh Tracy 22 CD re-release. The sound is typical of the forest-living people of northern Congo, packed thick with a variety of standing drums, slid drums and rattles. Tracy recorded this during his 1952 expedition in the Congo, and I tell you, this guy was tough. Whether it was about with malaria or maneuvering backcountry roads, nothing could stop him. The Shona called him Gada Gada, an imitation of the relentless sound a sewing machine makes. Much of what we know about Hugh Tracy's field recording expeditions comes from the note cards, journals and meticulous records that he and his wife Peggy Tracy kept in the field. Tracy made 19 field expeditions over his career. But that 1952 trip was especially prolific. He visited eight countries and brought back enough material for 50 LP records. And this trip was a magnificent trip and wonderful, wonderful recordings from all the places he went. Michael Baird and Andrew Tracy discussed the Congo portion of this expedition with Afropop producer Wills Glasspiegel. Not surprisingly, Tracy's work has generated its share of folk tales. They were recording in northern DRC. It was Belgian Congo then, among the Lokele people who have a reputation of formerly having been cannibals. And of course, the two recording assistants had heard this, that there had been cannibals, and they were set down at a fireplace with a local man and given meat, and the, and the local man was cooking the meat for him. And Daniel Mabuto spoke Swahili. Mabuto was Tracy's driver and recording assistant. So Daniel was talking to this Lokele man and saying, we have been told, we have heard, some people have said that your people used to be cannibals? Yes. You know, if you have a big enemy and you manage to kill him, well, why not eat him? Because you might uh, get all his power. And then after some time, Daniel asked the same question again. We've heard that your grandfathers used to eat people? Yes. And then another question, another pause, and he said, we've also heard that it could even be that your fathers used to eat humans? Yes. And then he never dared ask the last question. <laughs> Michael Baird told it a little differently. <laughs> he told the same story. Yeah. What a crook. He it's said, not his story. <laughs> when he discovered a little hand in his soup. He said somebody was eating and they found a hand in the soup. And the guy just walked into the jungle and um, we never know actually what happened to him. No, no, that's not, that's not that wasn't the case. That's what we in the business call a legend in the making. But enough tall tales. Let's get back to the music. Here's a Likambe song that Tracy recorded on that fateful journey through the Congo. The Hugh Tracy catalogue offers a panoramic audio tour of much of Africa in the mid-20th century, from Likambes in the Congo to gangster love songs in Zimbabwe. <laughs> 
to Swahili Tango from the Arab quarters of Mombasa. To South African swing tunes about river crabs and ancestors. Tracy not only recorded sound as he traveled, he and his team also took priceless photographs. You can see some of them on our website, afropop.org. And you can read excerpts from all our interviews on this program and find links to Tracy's library in South Africa, the Sharpwood record label, and other sources. Coming up, we'll hear the voice of Hugh Tracy himself and discuss the legacy of apartheid in South Africa and how it affected attitudes towards Tracy's work. And we'll get the views of younger musicians for whom Tracy's recordings represent a link to the past. Esau Mwamwaya of The Very Best and Tepang Ramoba of Black Jacks when we continue. I'm Georges Collinet and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Coming up. Four, three, two, one. Tilumendo via gumona gumenta vilota. Tilumendo via Then off he went as fast as he could go down the path. And very soon, as he came round the corner, he saw the short way ahead, standing stock still in the middle of the road, was his wife. And just beyond her, about to spring, was a huge lion. What could he do? What could he do but play his musical instrument? The voice of Hugh Tracy himself, the most prolific field recordist Africa has ever known. Tracy had a penchant for folk tales, like this one from Zimbabwe. Many contained music. So he began to play quickly and sing as, as fast as he could. He sang... That's Tracy singing on his radio show, which aired on the South African Broadcast Corporation throughout the 40s and 50s. Tracy played African music, many songs of which had never been broadcast before, like this flute tune from Congo. A typical discovery by Hugh Tracy is four flute tunes played by a herdsman called Katsuba Mongolo. Michael Baird, who we've been hearing from throughout this program, is a jazz drummer who got turned on to Tracy's field recordings back in the 70s. Michael went on to compile 22 CD releases from the Tracy archive for his Sharpwood label, an essential contribution to the Tracy legacy. Let's hear more of Katsuba Mongolo. Thank you. 
I mean, wow, you know, talk about timelessness and biblical figures and, and the whole cosmos, you know. And this guy was such a great improviser, such a jazzy musician, long before Roland Kirk uh, did his stuff on the flute. Flute music from the Congo in 1952. Throughout his tenure, Hugh Tracy gathered the highest quality recordings. But this wasn't just because of his audio equipment. Hugh Tracy made a lot of friends uh, on the way. You can hear that in a lot of the recordings, like half the recordings are of uh, Bambuti pygmies from the Ituri forest. And he won over their confidence, which allowed him to record a lot of intimate songs. There are three songs by young women who apparently, according to his field notes, sung so softly that he only just managed to get it on tape. But they were very bashful, very shy, because it's the, they were their own personal songs, and again, not meant uh, for an audience. But he managed to get them to sing their songs, and uh, the result is just magnificent. Here's a test. See if you can figure out what, or should I say, who this song is praising. It was recorded in Sotik, Kenya in 1950. At the time, Tracy wrote, the name Chemiroja is their pronunciation of Jimmy Rogers. It's now synonymous with anything strange or new. Hmm. Jimmy Rogers, a surprising subject for a traditional song. But even in 1950, Hugh Tracy's Africa was globalizing. Industrialization, missionization, education, change of lifestyle, impoverishment of the rural areas and the flocking to town. Andrew Tracy talked to us about how Africa was changing in the mid-20th century. The mining industry especially brought thousands of African men away from their ancestral homes. Urban centers like Johannesburg, Lorenzo Marquez, Salisbury, Nairobi and Leopoldville were transforming life for millions of Africans. Kings turned into presidents, countrysides into cities. He foresaw that a lot of this music was going to disappear through the ensuing urbanization of colonialism. 
and the influence of Europeans, of you know, Western culture, how it was destroying the traditional fabric of African society. That's a song called Dale Wangu Okamunyanga Masoto, played on a zither in Malawi in 1950. In spite of his blindness, Tracy notes, the singer makes his own bangwe zither with eight papyrus stalks firmly tied together. In this and many other cases, the music Tracy recorded was on its way out. Among other lost sounds, the Zulu flute of South Africa. And the royal court music of Uganda. tradition is now extinct, preserved only in Tracy's archive. music from the Royal Court of Uganda, just one of the many music styles recorded by Hugh Tracy that's almost impossible to hear today. Throughout his life, Tracy was deeply disturbed to see culture vanishing before his eyes. He did all he could to get Africans to maintain their traditional music. You would call him a paternalist in the sense that he felt that people of his education and background were needed to push the Africans into preserving what was valuable about their original culture. That's David Copeland, professor in social anthropology at the University of Witzwaterstrand in Johannesburg. It struck people that uh, he wanted to hold people back and that 
They knew that the regime liked traditional African things. The apartheid regime hated jazz, but it liked communal tribal dancing because this was the African they wanted to nurture and so on. They wanted people to be bumpkins forever. And uh, he didn't mean it in that way or intended in that way, but it kind of went together. The bumpkin music and the, the bumpkin policy. Apartheid officially began in 1948 and continued throughout the rest of Tracy's life. As a white South African, Tracy was sometimes seen by the world to be an apartheid supporter, but he was not. He always refused to have any connection with the government in South Africa. He never asked them for any funding. He never received any funding. He shook black people's hands. This was not done in his time. So what are you going to say, big deal? Yes, but nevertheless. One of the few white people in Joburg would shake a black man's hand as a natural thing to do and not as a, some kind of a showpiece. But All through the life of the nationalist government from 1948 onwards, Dad was very depressed, very negative, and whenever any new piece of legislation or some new stupidity happened, he, he would just say, ah, there they go again. Could it get any worse? And if there was a choice of some big issue coming up, he said, we know what they're going to do. They'll always choose the worst way. And I think that accounted for some of his pessimism, which accumulated to some extent towards the end of his life, just the way things were going in South Africa under this very oppressive regime that we had at the time. Tracy died in 1977 without any inkling of the political changes to come in South Africa. He had recorded more than any other man in Africa. But it tormented him to know that so much culture and tradition was vanishing, and so few around him, white or black, seemed to care. After doing, you know, my 22 CD series of Hugh Tracy's recordings, 50 years later than they were made, 50, 60 years later, the sad conclusion is that he was right in his um, visionary look at things because a lot of the music he recorded back in the 50s has already disappeared. It's gone. And if it wasn't for his recordings, we wouldn't know how it sounded. Andrew Tracy also mourns the loss of an older, more traditional Africa. And on an iPhone, whose music do you play? Somebody else's who comes from thousands of miles away and it's in other styles than your own, and the media in general are quite destructive of indigenous cultures. It has been for ever since recordings began. Well, how long does it take to throw away a culture? Well, I don't know. David Copland sees another side. But what they really mean is that it's changing. And so the, and the old stuff is there. And it's at the basis of what we do now. There's a continuous line of development. So. Yeah, we always we need to preserve and to study and to archive because uh, it's all changed. South Africa is changing incredibly rapidly because now all the old, all the old wonderful restrictions of apartheid that kept people doing their own stuff are gone. Bayateta Bonchwana and Dinendaba, a song played on the mouth bow, a little like a South African jaw harp. After a week in the archive, listening to Hugh Tracy's recordings and thumbing through his note cards and journals, Afropop producer Wills Glasspiegel 
wondered how younger generations of Africans experience the Tracy legacy. Did they even know about it? And if so, did they care? Wills left Grahamstown for Johannesburg to talk with Tepang Ramoba, drummer for the South African rock group Black Jacks. They recorded this conversation on an afternoon drive through Soweto. You, Tracy, recordings on the stereo. What struck me in Soweto was when Tepang described Tracy's recordings as futuristic, as avant-garde. That's what avant-garde is. It's just free music. This is free music. These people are just free. They're in the rural areas which is like there's more freedom there. I mean, they eat the right food, they make their own instruments, they don't even have electricity, so they do everything just like with feeling and spirit and, you know. Here it is, avant-garde music, future music, recorded in 1959 with the Chwana people in South Africa. I remember a song, I'll sing it to you. It's like a long time ago, you know, like we're talking like a long, very long time ago. I wasn't even born. My father wasn't even born. You know, they would sing about, they would, they would make a fire. And while making a fire, how they make a fire, they start singing about it. You know, like they sing about the fire. They make the fire. After making the fire, they're still singing around the fire. And everybody comes around the fire to keep themselves warm. I asked Tapang, does he think that the traditional music of Africa is something that's in danger of being lost? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's just slowly fading out. When I was young, uh, when I was young in Soweto, we used to do that, you know? We used to do that for everything. When we play, we would sing, you know? When we make a fire, we had to go, like, to the playgrounds, you know, and make the fire there, and just chill there and talk and sing, you know, about the fire and sing about the girls, you know, and sing about a career, you know? Like, we used to do that when we was young, but now nobody's doing it, you know? We, we have PlayStations now, you know? Ramoba understands that many of the cultural expressions you, Tracy, recorded have been lost. But for him, something deeper survives, just in a different form. I mean, it's there. I mean, it's like we do African music and then we just use guitars instead of uh, the other instruments, you know. We use distortions and pedals and because, I mean, it's the modern world. Would Hugh Tracy have liked Black Jacks, a modern rock amalgam of global style? Well, probably not. But perhaps their fireworks can light a path back or forward to those avant-garde traditions recorded so many years ago by Hugh Tracy. While researching this program, Wills also traveled north to Malawi, where Tracy made many of his recordings. In Lilongwe, Wills visited with Malawian singer Esso Mwamwaya. Hey, your listeners. Hey, hold on, don't yell into the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Just talk normal. Hi, listeners. My name is Esso Mwamwaya from the very best. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm in Malawi. 
right in my house. When I first played Hugh Tracy's recordings for Asaw, he was intrigued immediately. There's just a lot of songs that I've never heard, and I'm quite sure that many Malawians can agree with me that, you know, this is the kind of music that most of them don't even have access to listen to because it was recorded way back in 1950s, you know, so we lost track. Mangondo Azipita, a wedding song recorded by Hugh Tracy in Malawi in 1958. In it, the singers have an old-fashioned lesson to share. They say a girl mustn't miss the opportunity to get married. We dropped this golden oldie and few others from Tracy's collection into Mwamwaya's iPod. And after listening to them, he's now apparently ready to host our program. From Tracy, actually, I love so many songs. Almost like each and every song means a lot to me. But this time around, I'm going to be particular. Um, I'm going to select this song by the title Ojere. This is a Chintali dance, you know, song. And it's sung by five women. It was recorded at Visa Naza in Kotakota district way back in 1958. Awesome. And um, in this song, it's like there's a husband and a wife. Let me say, like in Africa, most of the times people got more than one name. So it's like they, this husband has got like three names. And people call him the way they want. But this woman wants the people to be particular. She doesn't want people to call her husband by the name Omare but they have to call him Ojere simply because that's what she likes. Yeah, so it's a really nice song. It's proper traditional Malawian Chintali type of music. So I right, check it out. <laughs> Oh, yeah, 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 yeah,
Ojere, recorded in Malawi in 1958. Next up, Esso and Wills try to find a similar sound in Malawi today. Is this music still kicking? Were they successful? You'll be the judge in a moment. Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRX affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Carnegie Hall. Tickets are now on sale for the Angelique Kijo series of concerts, including Benin International Musical, Diaspora Songs, Lionel Lewecki Trio, and guest Ciro Baptista. And... Kijo's 60th birthday celebration. Wow. wow. Can you believe it? More information at carnegiehall.org. That's a new field recording made by Afropop's Wills Glass Spiegel and Malawian singer Esom Wamwaya. In the footsteps of Hugh Tracy, they traveled to Kasungu in central Malawi to record traditional songs sung by local women. What they discovered was that the original sounds recorded by Hugh Tracy are not actually that different from the Chewa songs still sung today by women's collectives. <laughs> On that day, I was so much impressed to see those women and children also singing in my own vernacular language, you know, with beautiful melodies and everything, you know, in such a beautiful environment as well, you know. Wills and Esso coordinated this recording through the NGO CARE International. CARE works with local communities of women in Malawi. And wherever they work, the locals develop new traditional songs like these in their own local language, Chichewa. Although many styles of music have been lost since Tracy's day, some, especially the group singing traditions, still function as important social mechanisms in rural Malawi. As director of the U Tracy Archive, Diane Thram oversees all the pictures, stories, recordings, and instruments that this amazing man left behind. The archive's sound and photo collections are now accessible via ILAM's website. Diane's work is one of the largest digitization projects in Africa. Part of her mission is also to make sure Tracy's work finds its way into schools throughout South Africa. 
She feels it is crucial that students experience it. Even though there's always new music that's evolving or, or being created to replace what might be disappearing, it's very important historically to have done this work. And I think he was very aware of that as his mission, that he wanted this music to be preserved and he wanted to be preserved in a way that future generations of Africans had access to it so that they could understand it. Well, Hugh Tracy's archive constitutes the musical memory of half a continent. And that's quite something, and no one can take that away from him. The material itself, the empirical work, certainly stands the test of time, as it always does. We give endowed chairs and big salaries in academia to people who do theory. And the ones who do the empirical work are the yeomanry, you know, the sort of middle-level people. But um, in fact, it's the empirical factual work that stands the test of time, not the theory. All right, if you're Marx or Durkheim, maybe, but all this other stuff now that you hear about as theory, nobody will cite it in 30 years. People will cite Hugh Tracy. Michael Baird, David Copeland, Diane Fram, Andrew Tracy, Tepang Ramoba, and Esso Mwamwaya for your help with this program. You can find photographs, interview transcripts, and links to Hugh Tracy material at afropop.org. And if you're so inclined, head out to Grahamstown, South Africa, and see the International Library of African Music for yourself. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. And be sure to subscribe to our podcasts, including radio programs in our Afropop Close-Up podcast series. Additional thanks to Wonder Kubai, Laina Gumbere-Shumba, Sebastian Jamieson, and Elijah Madiba of Ilan. Also, thanks to Care International for help with our field recordings in Malawi. My Afropop partner is Sean Baldo. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. 
Wills Glass-Spiegel produced this program with help from Simon Rantner and Banning Air. Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Mike Cunningham. Banning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Ben Richman. And I'm Georges Collinet. <laughs> Yeah.